Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here, speaking of, of uh, joyful things to celebrate. And that is thanks in no small part to many of y'all who came out yesterday morning to help with the hanging of the greens. But I want to say a special uh, thank you to um, our wonderful Christmas decorating team who really oversaw and led that whole effort. And I think most of them were at the first service, although Jess is here in the second service now. So Allison Dozier, Julie Jostrin, uh, Lindsay Stewart, Jess, um, John Dozier, my father-in-law, and Pastor Brian all uh, were up here for weeks leading up to yesterday to help prep and get everything ready to, to look so pretty this morning. And so um, as you see them, please do thank them for um, all their time and work in, put into uh, transforming West Hills into a winter wonderland. And while we're recognizing folks, I also want to uh, recognize Megan Burridge, uh, who painted this morning's uh, special featured artwork. Pastor Brian had uh, sort of a cool idea a few weeks back um, to reach out to some of y'all who have, we know have the gift of artistry. And so if that's you and we don't know about that and you didn't get asked, don't get offended. That just means we don't know. So you need to come and tell us, hey, next time you do something like that, I'd love to paint something. Um, but, but to invite you to put your own kind of artistic spin on these various names of Jesus that we're going to be studying together over the next four weeks of Advent. And so our name of the day is Wonderful Counselor. And uh, I think we have um, a zoomed-in slide for those of you up in the cheap, cheap seats who can't see all the cool details of her painting. Um, and I don't think Megan's here this morning, Megan. Okay, so when you see Megan, you can thank her for sharing her gift of art with us as well. <clears throat> well, Christmas is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, we're talking about wonderful this morning and supposed to be a wonderful time, not just because of the kids jingle belling and the marshmallows for toasting, uh, but because of the whole spirit of Christmas. You know, we think of these um, themes, the Advent themes, hanging up on our walls that we celebrate specifically this time of year, hope, peace, and joy, and love. You don't even have to believe in Jesus, right? The true reason for the season to get behind hope and joy and peace and love at Christmas time. But as we take an honest look around us at our world today, and as we take an honest look within us at our own hearts, we have to admit that we have a problem. Um, we have a few problems, actually. We have, for starters, a love problem. We have disordered loves. The Bible calls us to love God with all of our hearts and minds and souls and strength. But instead, in our sin, we rebel against God, whether it's out of ignorance, God's word, or outright rejection, rejection of it. We may pay lip service to God, but we give our hearts to lesser things, to non-gods instead. We don't fear God as we ought to. In fact, God's word has even become offensive to us today. Why? Ultimately, we know it's because of our pride. 
our pride. We're so prideful that we've even created our own religion, uh, fastest growing religion in America today, uh, named after us, humanism. It's the belief that we humans are the solution for all the world's biggest problems today. We don't love God, we love us. But we've got a joy problem too. The Bible promises that God fills us with all joy in believing that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. And so when we reject him, we reject true joy in preference for, we settle for, the fleeting pleasures of sin instead. And so we try and cover over our joylessness with parting, with sexual immorality, materialism, greed, injustice, our joy is selfish. I probably don't have to even try and convince you that we have a peace problem, do I? <clears throat> we may not be more divided than ever, civil war, but we are extremely divided nevertheless. You don't have to look, sadly, outside the church or even outside the evangelical church to appreciate this. Jesus' last prayer on earth to his Father for his church was that we might be perfectly one so that the world might know that God had sent him. And so we should realize it's no wonder, <clears throat> as Peter Winter explains in his article, the evangelical church is breaking apart, that Christianity is so quickly declining, in America today, because every election cycle, every time some of us sign on Facebook, we prove to the world that the gospel that is supposed to be powerful enough to unite us is apparently not as strong as the politics and the tribalism that divides us. And all of this leaves us with a hope problem. We have a hope problem. For the first time in the history of our country, a majority of those surveyed believe that their grandchildren will have a worse life, a worse future ahead of them than the life that they themselves lived. We are running out of hope. You say, well, Merry Christmas to you too, Pastor. <clears throat> Put the bah humbug in your stocking. I don't uh, mean to, uh, you know, Scrooge grinch you out this morning. Uh, I just think that it's important to be honest about the situation that we find ourselves in and to recognize that as dire as our situation may be, at least it isn't unique. Because as we're going to see, the prophet Isaiah lamented nearly identical conditions in his own day, in his own nation, 2,700 years ago. That while God was punishing the northern kingdom of Israel for their wickedness by sending the Assyrian army to conquer and exile them, God simultaneously sent the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah to convict them of their sin and to warn them to repent and turn back to God lest they suffer the same fate as neighbor Israel. And I want you to listen to the similarities between the civic and moral degradation of 8th century Judean society and our own culture today. Every single one of these quotes I'm going to read you comes from the first eight chapters of Isaiah. This is the context behind our scripture passage from Isaiah 9 that will, will guide us the next four weeks of Advent. <clears throat> Isaiah says, like us, Israel had 
a love problem. God opens the book of Isaiah by grieving. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Like us, they had grown ignorant of God's word. He said, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Or they just outright rejected it. He said, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Because like us, they preferred gods of their own making. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands. And over time, their religion, therefore, became nothing more than empty ritualism. Even though you make many prayers, the Lord says, I will not listen. Like us, they feared man instead of God. God warned, do not fear what the nations fear, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. But like us, Israel had strayed so far from God that he had even become offensive, a stone of offense to them, a rock of stumbling. Chapter 8, verse 14. Why? Ultimately, it was because of their lofty pride. Chapter 2, verse 11. Like us, they were convinced that they knew better than God. And so he cried out, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. But they became gods unto themselves. They invented humanism. Despite God's command to stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? And so God warned them, chapter 2, you shall be brought low, you shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And because of their love problem, like us, Israel, therefore, had a joy problem. They, too, had exchanged the joy of the Lord for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. They love to party. Chapter 5, woe to those who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They love sexual immorality. Chapter 1, how the faithful city has become a whore. They love greed. Chapter 2, verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Storing up earthly riches, not heavenly ones. They love to put on airs in their vanity. Chapter 3, verse 16, the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. But they did not love justice and mercy. Everyone who loves a bribe, they do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Like us, Israel had a peace problem too. Centuries before Isaiah prophesied, Israel's civil war had resulted in these two separate nations, Israel and Judah, and they were so divided they had started forming alliances with these foreign empires to fight against each other. This is why Assyria was invading Israel in the first place, is because Judah had begged them to. And that was only after Israel had teamed up with Syria to threaten to destroy Judah first. This is such was the state of God's people, these, these brothers, Israel and Judah. And all of it left them, like us, with a hope problem. It left them in despair and darkness. Despair, your country lies desolate as overthrown by foreigners, Isaiah said. And it left them in darkness. Isaiah is going to open our passage in just a moment by describing a gloomy people living in anguish of people who walked in darkness. But, but, here is the good news of Isaiah. Here is the good news of Christmas. 
that on them, people who walked in darkness, that on us, those in deep darkness, a great light has shone. And what is God's light, his great answer for our love problem, our joy problem, our peace problem, our hope problem? God's answer is a baby. This is Isaiah's great announcement in chapter 9 this morning. Unto us a child is born. And lest this Christmas story become so familiar to us that we miss the full force of it. Just imagine Isaiah trying to relay his prophecy to us in our world today. Imagine Isaiah getting up to the pulpit this morning and saying, hey, listen, I know that the culture out there has gone totally off the rails. Uh, I know that no one loves God. Sin is rampant. The church may be more divided than ever, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hope that it's going to get better anytime soon. But guess what? God spoke to me, and he told me he's going to fix all of it. And here's how he's going to do it. A baby. You know, consider the, the picture <laughs> that we showed already of, of Saul Deming. He, you know, he flashed, Isaiah flashes up a picture baby Jesus. He is going to fix all of it. You laugh, right? Some of you are laughing. You get, you get the joke. You'd say, Isaiah, could you find anything more helpless, more powerless than a baby? We've got real problems down here to deal with, problems that even the wise and the powerful amongst us don't seem to know how to fix. And you're telling me, and Isaiah would interrupt and say, wait, 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 you didn't let me finish. This isn't going to be just any baby. Unto us a son is given. This baby is going to be God's own son. Not just sent, but given. Given up, given over as a sacrifice for your sin. And his name shall be called. Four things. Four names that God has given his son, Jesus, in this passage that we are finally going to read now. And each of these names conveys something distinctive and important about who Jesus is and what he did for us in his incarnation and life and death and resurrection. One pastor I listened to this week preached a similar Advent series that he had entitled, A Name for Every Need. What do people like the Israelites, what do people like us, trapped in deep darkness, need? Well, firstly, this morning we need a wonderful counselor. And that means two things we're going to see. First, it means we need wisdom, counsel, guidance. And second, we need wonders. Frankly, we need nothing short of a miracle. Praise God, that is exactly what he sent us on Christmas morning. So I invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 9. Once again, so nice, we read it twice. Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 3, but especially verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> 
But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, on them has light shone. Oh, sorry, I skipped a verse. (laughs) The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Here it is. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you most of all for your word made flesh. You, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us to dwell with us in the person of Jesus, your son. Father, as we study your word now this morning, would you Draw our gaze, our attention, our focus, our hearts to your word made flesh, to Jesus, that we might behold wondrous things about him, who he is and what he's done for us from your word. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. You may be seated. Just a quick disclaimer, uh, this is going to be more of a topical sermon series. Typically at West Hills, we prefer expository sermons, taking a single passage of Scripture, expositing, explaining them in depth. Every now and again, I think there's value in these kinds of topical sermons that take a single theme or idea or even a name, Wonderful Counselor, and we try and trace it throughout the whole Bible. And so in the remainder of our time together this morning, And over the next three weeks of Advent, that's what I hope to do. And we might begin by tracing this name throughout the rest of just the book of Isaiah because he connects these two needs of ours, wisdom and wonders, in two additional messianic prophecies right here in the book of Isaiah. These are passages where God, through Isaiah, is telling us what the Messiah is going to be like. So the first is chapter 11, verse 2. We read, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Now, as we're going to see, wonderful doesn't just mean really nice. It means full of wonders, miracles, power, might. So when Isaiah prophecies, the spirit of the Lord is going to fill him with counsel and might. So wisdom, counsel, Uh, and and wonders, might, miracles. Second time we come across this juxtaposition, it's Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29. We we read, the Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel. 
and excellent in wisdom, wonderful in counselor, wonderful counselor. For Isaiah, these two concepts, they go hand in hand. But it's not just for Isaiah. As I want to show you this morning, I want to show you how they go hand in hand all throughout God's Word. And particularly, the Old Testament, how God himself was our wonderful counselor, his people's wonderful counselor for millennia of Israel's history. Moreover, then I want to take us to the New Testament and show us how our need for both wisdom and wonders was perfectly fulfilled in our Messiah, Jesus. So that's kind of your outline. As I thought more about the best way to do this, this morning I decided I'd make some changes to the outline and your bulletins there. Um, I had originally planned to kind of treat these two names, Wonderful Counselor, separately, two-point outline you see in your bulletins, and then tie them together quickly at the end. But the more I studied... This week, the more I realized that these two are intentionally intertwined here. And so I'll start by defining them separately, but then I want to quickly move secondly to show you how they work in tandem together with one another, particularly, as I said, throughout the Old Testament, how God himself proved to be Israel's wonderful counselor time and time again. But then to take us thirdly, finally, to the New Testament, show us how Jesus has become our wonderful counselor, to meet our greatest need of all. So that's our three parts. Define Old Testament tour, New Testament fulfillment. First, let's define these terms. English translation, wonderful, is misleading for two reasons. First, grammar quiz, everyone's favorite kind of quiz to get it in church, first thing Sunday morning. What part of speech is the word wonderful? It's an adjective, good. Got some English majors here. Uh, it's, a, it's an adjective. It modifies the noun. It tells you what kind of counselor the Messiah will be, namely a wonderful one. Right? But the word Isaiah uses here in Hebrew, pele, is a noun. And so you could argue that we're, we're studying not one, but actually two names for Jesus this morning. Two nouns. The first is wonder. First name, wonder. Second name, counselor. And the second reason that the translation wonderful, and a lot of commentators prefer that kind of translation, wonder counselor. His name would be wonder counselor. But the second reason it's misleading, I already mentioned, is we commonly use this word wonderful to mean really nice. Right? Like, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. By which we mean, I hope the food was good and you enjoyed your time with family. But in the Hebrew, this word pele means more like full of actual wonders, like signs and wonders, like miracles. Some of you might argue that if your family makes it all the way through Thanksgiving dinner uh, without breaking into, out into a food fight, that that is a, a miracle in and of itself. But to be a true, real, biblical wonder, you would have to actually throw that food that you wanted to throw. You would have to throw it at Uncle Bob's face directly, and, it, and the turkey would have to sprout wings and you know, veer off course to miss him. That is a wonder. That's, that's the kind of biblical wonder that we're talking about here. And so commentator Bob Fial explains, wonder implies supernatural, something beyond human power. The term is most often used in Scripture of the acts of God. Other commentaries suggest synonyms like incomprehensible, supernatural, a phenomenon lying outside the realm of human explanation. They point out that the same word, pele, is used in Psalm 139, verse 6. Such knowledge is too 
wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's used again in Judges 13, 18, when Manoah, Samson's father, asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And he responded, why do you ask my name, seeing as it is too wonderful for you? In other words, it's beyond your human ability to comprehend. This is what Isaiah has in mind when he calls the Messiah wonderful, full of wonder, literally, miraculous. He's going to be a wonder worker. Now, defining counselor is a little easier. It's it's just a participle from the verb yaoats, meaning to counsel or advise or to impart wisdom. But then there is this secondary yet important related meaning to the word. It means to determine, to guide, to plan or purpose. And interestingly, of the 15 times that Isaiah uses this verb, yaoats, nine of them Nine of those times, it assumes this secondary meaning. Like Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, yaoats, so shall it stand. Because God is sovereign. Right? And so God doesn't merely advise, he actualizes plans. He doesn't just direct he determines. God doesn't just encourage, he establishes. He doesn't just guide, he governs. Okay, so you got that? And so if we put them together now, when we call God our wonderful counselor, we don't just mean he gives us really nice advice. What we mean is he leads us supernaturally. He is our miracle-working shepherd. Okay, that, that, that might be a good translation to, to jot down. Miracle-working shepherd. And that is probably one of the very best descriptions of who God is for his people as we survey the entire Old Testament. Of course, we don't have time to highlight all of it this morning, to consider all of it, but I do want to just highlight for us a few instances, important, most important instances of God's wonderful counseling, his miraculous shepherding of his people before Jesus even showed up on the scene. Because if God, if the Messiah is going to be God in the flesh, then we should expect the Messiah that we're looking forward to, if we're Isaiah, to look a lot like God, the wonderful counselor of his people all through the Old Testament. So think of this as second part now of the sermon as sort of your highlight reel, Uh, of God's wonderful counseling. I hardly watch games anymore, sporting events. I I just don't have time, but I watch a lot of highlights. I I watch the whole Ohio uh, State-Michigan game, go Wolverines, in less than 15 minutes. You cut out all the the huddles and the commercials, the injuries, 15 minutes. Save hours, days, years of your life if you would just make this life change with me. Uh, I can watch the Grizzlies game in under 10 minutes. I I watch the World Cup games in under five minutes. Not a lot of action there. Soccer, but uh, it's still fun to watch. Um, so this, think of this as your five-minute highlight reel of the Old Testament, of how God revealed himself as his wonderful counselor to his people. We start, of course, in the beginning, in creation. This is the paradigmatic, foundational example of God's wonder-working wisdom at work. Proverbs 3.19 declares, by wisdom the Lord founded the earth. Psalm 104.24, how many, O Lord, are your works, your wonders, your miracles, in wisdom you have made them all. 
And it was indeed miraculous wisdom by which he created everything. Romans 1.20 declares that God's eternal power, his divine nature are clearly perceived in the things that he made in creation. We can look outside like, whoa, this is a mirror. This is a wonder. Someone made this with wisdom, intentionality. And God tells us who did it himself. In Isaiah chapter 45, God declares, it was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. I determined, I ordained, I engineered, I planned and purposed all of this out of nothing by my omnipotent wonder-working power. God wonderfully counseled and established the universe. But he's not just a transcendent God. He's also eminently personal, as he proved most especially to a man named Abraham. So God came near into our world, and God called. He, He called, he counseled a man, Abraham, to leave his homeland and to follow God's lead out into the wilderness, out into the unknown with nothing more than a promise of a land, a people, and a blessing. And Abraham laughed at first, like, I'm 75 years old, no kids, wife's older than I am, that ship has sailed. But God miraculously provided for him and established his covenant with him by opening the womb of his barren wife, Sarah, at the ripe old age of 100 and giving them a son, Isaac. And some 500 years later, after God had promised descendants as numerous as the stars, the Israelites were numbered in the, in the millions, 500 years later, and, and Abraham's descendants found themselves enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved, and God raised up for them a counselor, a shepherd, Moses, through whom God would lead his people, shepherd his people to freedom. And how did he do it? With wonders, with miracles, a burning but not burnt bush, a shape-shifting staff-turned-serpent, ten preternatural plagues, and arguably the most pivotal miracle in all the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. If ever there was a picture of God's wonder-working, way-making for his people in the Old Testament, it is the Exodus story. And yet God didn't stop there. Because as soon as they were out of Egypt, into the wilderness, God continued to guide them, shepherd them personally and supernaturally as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, all the way to Mount Sinai where he met personally with Moses to deliver what Jews still to this day consider to be the greatest miracle of God of all. And what we both agree is God's clearest case of counsel In the Old Testament, his law, his his divine perfect law, the Ten Commandments, and then another 603 to help clarify them. God's law is his counsel to us. Psalm 119.24, David declares, your commandments are my counselors. And it is wonderful indeed. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So God counseled wonderfully his people 
through his word, his law. Under Joshua, God would lead his people back into the promised land, performing even more miracles, crumbling city walls, conquering enemy armies. God continued to guide them through the counsel of the judges, at times directly, divinely intervening again in miracles. But more than any other office in the Old Testament, the duty of counseling was associated most with the role of king. So if you do a concordance word search for counselor, Old Testament, most of the references are 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, the books of, of the kings. They were Israel's counselors. Supposed to be. So the prophet Micah, uh, he even used these two terms interchangeably. In Micah 4 and 9, he said, Now Israel, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? King counselor. It's one office. Micah had in mind a king like Solomon, the wisest of all human kings, counselors in the Old Testament, of whom we read, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom, the counsel of Solomon. That all Israel stood in awe. They, they stood in wonder of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God, the counsel of God, was in him. God was wonderfully counseling his people through wise kings like Solomon. But it only worked when they listened to him. Right? Counsel is only as good as it is taken, received, followed, obeyed. God's law is only as good as, as our ability to obey. And so for almost 500 years, as the kings got more and more depraved, and the kingdom got more and more divided and debased, God would raise up new counselors. He didn't give up. New counselors, prophets like Isaiah to confront these wicked kings, to call the people back to the Lord. And once again, he did so miraculously. This is another miracle of the Old Testament by putting his own words directly in the mouths of these prophets to supernaturally shepherd his people. But again, like stupid, stubborn sheep, they refused to listen. And so God prophesied of another, better, coming shepherd a wonderful counselor who would be better than Moses, better than Solomon, better than all the prophets because he would himself be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah prophesied of him, behold, your God will come and save you. God himself will come and save you. Isaiah 35, 4. And how will we know him when he arrives? First, by his wisdom. Isaiah 42 tells us, Behold my servant, I've put my spirit in him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All who wait for his law, for his teaching, for his wisdom and counsel. So we're going to know him by his wisdom. But secondly, and most especially, we're going to know him by his wonders. Isaiah 35, he says, This is what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. He will be our wonderful, wisdomful 
Counselor, Messiah. And do you want to guess the two things that Jesus did when he showed up on the scene? Take a guess. Two things in his earthly ministry for three and a half years that Jesus devoted himself to. Matthew 4.23 tells us Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and healing every disease among the people. Teaching and healing. Wisdom and wonders. Oh, and by the way, if I were to read the full verse of Matthew 4.23, it says, Matthew tells us he did it throughout all Galilee. Does that ring any bells? Isaiah 9.1, in the latter time, God has made glorious Galilee of the nations. This place despised by the, the, the lofty scribes and Pharisees down in Jerusalem. Can anything good come out of Galilee? The Messiah. 700 years earlier, Isaiah told us this is where the Messiah will come from. And Jesus filled those around him with awe. He filled them with wonder at his wisdom. Even as a young child, we read that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And that was that when he was 12 years old, with no formal Torah training, he sat amongst the brightest teachers in the temple for three days while his parents searched for him. And he taught them, and all who heard him were amazed. They were filled with wonder at his wisdom, his counsel. Not just because he was so young, but as Matthew explains for us, it was because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. See, in Jesus' day, all, all the wisdom that, that, that their leaders had was secondhand. It was secondhand wisdom. Uh, as we already observed, God had given his counsel in their mind once and for all in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the law of Moses. And so these rabbinic teachers in Jesus' day, they derived their authority to the extent they were able to uh, understand and interpret and help explain the law. And who they studied under. You know, I came from the best rabbinic school, studied with the best rabbis. And Jesus showed up and said, yeah, no, I, I never went to Torah school. Nope, never had a rabbi. Uh, but here, let me tell you what it, what it means. And he spoke as one who possessed authority intrinsically because he was wisdom incarnate. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, he became to us wisdom from God. Jesus was capital W, wisdom. If it had a name, it was Jesus. That's, that's him, wisdom. Colossians 2, 3, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. But even more than his wisdom, Jesus filled the crowds with wonder at his miracles, at his, at his wonders. They were in wonder of his wonders. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Matthew 13, 54. Where did he get his wonder and his, his wisdom and his, and his works? And Jesus performed far too many uh, wonders, signs and wonders for us to try and even begin to list them all here. 37 of them in the Gospels, to be exact. But let me just mention a couple, okay? So for starters, let's mention how he he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. He quoted it directly about himself. When, when John the Baptist, his cousin was in prison, and he was having second thoughts, second guesses. Like, are you truly? Like, I know I, 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 I prophesied, behold the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world, but I need to know. I need assurance. I'm about to get beheaded. I'm rotting in prison, and I need to know that you're the man, that you're the one we've been waiting for. And he sends messengers 
And how did Jesus reply? He said, go back and tell John this. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, they jump for joy, the mute sing, and blessed is everyone who doesn't take offense in me. He just quoted Isaiah. He said, I'm the one. And let's just look, look at a few here of, of the fulfillments of Isaiah's broader prophecy that, that the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God himself with us. Remember we said God wonderfully counseled us in his creation. The Gospels tell us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. And Colossians 1 helps us understand the Word was Christ. Jesus was wisdom, God's Word incarnate. By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. We said that God wonderfully counseled Abraham, remember, by calling him and forming this covenant with him. Well, Hebrews 8 9 tells us that Jesus has now mediated a better covenant for us because he's made atonement for us with God through his perfect blood shed on the cross. We said that God wonderfully counseled his people through Moses, how he miraculously freed them from physical bondage, slavery in Egypt, but Jesus is the better Moses, who miraculously frees us from spiritual bondage and its effects, its consequences, eternal death and separation from God. He is, Jesus has led us from death to life eternally. Jesus is the better Joshua. He supernaturally defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. Jesus is the better David, the better Solomon, who, didn't, who never wavered in his wisdom because of his sin. Jesus was sinless. Jesus is the better Isaiah, who didn't just warn people about their sin. He didn't just tell them to return to the Lord. Jesus actually paid for our sin and reconciled us back to right relationship with the Lord. Friends, Jesus is the better Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, Joshua, the better judge, the better prophet, the better Isaiah. He is the wonderful counselor come for us. And he is still performing miracles today. He is still remaking hearts. He is still leading sinners to salvation in his name. Jesus still guides us. He still counsels us through his word, through his spirit that lives in us or that can live in us if we will turn from sin and trust in him. And so the only question for us is, will we listen? Will we receive his counsel? Will we expect and ask to see God's wonders still in our midst today? I, I, I have to believe, I know for a fact, because I know so many of you in our church deeply, personally enough to know. Some of you feel like you need a miracle. And you resonate with so many of these stories of what God has done in the past. How God opened Sarah's womb. She's 100 years old, thinking you battled for, for infertility. Feels like this darkness, this cloud hanging over your head. Some of you battle chronic depression, this darkness you've been dwelling in for years. Some of you battle 
spiritual, emotional enslavement, psychological enslavement. You can resonate with the story of, of Moses, slavery and that, that longing for freedom. You're enslaved to addiction. You feel like enslaved to your sin for years. Some of you resonate. Maybe it wasn't so funny, the joke about Thanksgiving and broken relationships. You think it's going to take nothing short of a miracle to make this relationship, this person, this person talk to me again. Some of you know it will take nothing short of a miracle for that person that you've been praying for for years to come to saving faith. You think, hey, there, if there is a heart out there <laughs> that is too hard to be, to be converted, to be changed, to be saved. It's my mother. It's my brother-in-law. It's my loved one. And maybe you've been to all sorts of earthly counselors, right? And you've paid people a lot of money to sit in their comfy chair and to talk about your problems, to talk about these things, and for them to sit there and, and rub their beard and say, that sounds hard. And for them to say, what do you think about it? And to, to turn it back on you. And you're paying them for you to solve your own problems, right? Because that's how earthly counselors work. And you long for a real counselor, someone who can actually make it better, fix the problems, you need to believe this morning, you need hope this morning that it can get better and that God has wonder-working power and counsel and that his counsel isn't just some nice advice. Okay, try this. Like when he says, my counsel shall stand, no one can thwart my plans. That if God has promised it, if God has established it, Nothing can change it. You need to believe in the hope and the promises of God this morning that he is powerful enough to redeem whatever that darkness is in your life. And I'm here to tell you this morning, he can and he's proven it in his son Jesus, our wonderful counselor. And even if he doesn't, this side of eternity, even if he doesn't free you from that addiction, from that chronic illness, even if he doesn't repair that broken relationship, even if he doesn't save that, that lost love when you pray for, even if he doesn't do those things this side of eternity, God has already done for you, or he can this morning, the most wonderful, miraculous Sign and wonder of all. Some of us look at that. We read the Bible. We say, well, where are the signs? And I want my miracle. You can have a miracle this morning because you can be set free from your sin. And your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life this morning if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's the greatest miracle of all. That's the greatest wonder there is. And the greatest counsel Jesus ever gave us was how to do it, how it happens. It's very simple. John chapter 3, believe in me, Jesus, and you will live. It's the greatest counsel he ever gave. You want to know God, God's word, God's wisdom, all of God's wisdom summed up for you. What do you need to do? What is God's will for your life? Jesus tells us, John chapter 3, believe in me and you'll be saved.